So I understand that uh, tonight's about celebration. I was thinking about celebration as I was preparing. I thought the invitation to celebrate in terms of striking fear into the hearts of the parishioners of Orangefield, that invitation is probably second only to we'd like to invite Marty Sloss to come and, and lead our worship now. It's something that, that frightens us. I'm going to talk to you uh, about another subject with which I think celebration is often very closely associated, and that's death. And particularly two epitaphs. Um, the first epitaph, folks, is that of Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc was the creator and inventor of Looney Tunes. Uh, And when he died on his gravestone, uh, they have imprinted, that's all, folks. That's all, folks. If you've ever seen Looney Tunes, you'll know that that's what you see at the end of the cartoon. The second epitaph, then, is that of Frank Sinatra. And when he died, he wanted this on his gravestone. It says, the best is yet to come. My question is this. Who's right? They can't both be right. It has to be one or the other. Either we die, and frankly, that's all, folks. Thanks for coming. Or actually, we die in the knowledge that the best is yet to come. I believe the best is yet to come. I don't just believe that we can die in the knowledge that the best is yet to come. I actually believe we can wake up every morning with an expectancy and anticipation that the best is yet to come. And that's because I believe in the historical fact and the spiritual truth um, of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when you ask a Christian to unpack the implications of the cross, generally they can do it quite well. Sometimes if you ask a Christian to unpack the implications of the resurrection, that's a little bit more of a struggle. So what I want to do for you tonight, as briefly as I can, is I want to visit uh, this old briefcase that for some of you will be very, very familiar and for some of you will be quite new. And that is the briefcase in which we find all the implications of the resurrection. So firstly... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about forgiveness. Paul discusses that in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins. In other words, the resurrection has something to do with the forgiveness of sin. But hang on a moment. I've grown up my whole life thinking that the forgiveness of sin was accomplished on the cross. Surely in Ephesians 1, it tells us that by his blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. It was on the cross that that was accomplished. So what does the resurrection add to the equation exactly? If we take the inverse of what Paul said, it would be that if Christ has been raised, then we are no longer in our sins. What does the resurrection add to the equation? Let me give it to you in one word. Proof. It's proof. It's a receipt. When you go to the shop, you buy something, you carry out a transaction, and when you're finished, you get a receipt. Now, in work, I get in trouble for losing receipts. The resurrection is a divine receipt. 
that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is absolutely, utterly, completely, and finally finished. That your sins and mine are forgiven, past, present, and future. That I can go to bed and know that my destiny as a beloved child of God, as a forgiven child of God, is in a hundred tons of concrete. It doesn't change. And the resurrection is my assurance of that. Please don't lose that receipt. It's proof. I don't know how your sins are, but mine are troubling. Mine are frustrating. Mine are habitual and annoying. And they tap into sometimes my deepest insecurities. And yet I look at the cross and I see what Jesus did for me there. And because of the resurrection, I have proof of the most glorious and wonderful truth that I stand completely forgiven. It's a divine receipt. Now, how do I know that? Let me try and explain it for you. I believe that the resurrection is Jesus' reward for having utterly completed the task. Let me show that to you, all right? In Hebrews 2, it tells us that because of his death, because of his suffering, he was crowned with glory and honor. In other words, the glory and honor were that reward for his suffering and death. Hebrews 10, verse 12 to 14, he was raised to sit at the right hand of God. Why? Because by one offering, he perfected us for all time. Philippians 2, Jesus died and therefore God exalted, God raised him. Isaiah 53, if he will offer himself as an offering, he will prolong his days. That's resurrection. In other words, if Jesus has received that reward, if he has been raised again to life, if he has been exalted to the highest place, it means that he has utterly completed the task. Folks, I don't know how hard you find it to get this into your heart, to get it into your soul. Because we're self-justifying people, aren't we? We feel bad when we've been a bad boy and good when we've been a good boy. At least I know I do. But the problem I have is that it's not my badness that offends the holiness of God. Even my goodness offends the holiness of God. And that's a problem. And yet every once in a while, this absolutely glorious, liberating truth somehow penetrates its way past all of that self-justifying and reaches my soul. And I discover that actually I, in, the, in the grace of God and in the love of Jesus and in the assurance of uh, that forgiveness by the resurrection, I am untouchable. I get 10 out of 10 for holiness. Do you know, I have a confessional relationship with a friend and I send him some information every month about how I've been doing, about the sin that's in my life. And yet the reality is some months I would give myself one out of 10, three out of 10, five out of 10. But the truth is that every single month of the year, every year of my life, I get 10 out of 10 for obedience, for holiness, and it's not mine, it's somebody else's. And that is wonderful, it's wonderful. This grace is absolutely outrageous. Secondly, the resurrection is about purpose. It gives us purpose. There's a little spoiler for later. Um, The resurrection gives us purpose. You see, you don't simply acknowledge that your sin's been forgiven and then sit back, relax, and wait to arrive in heaven because there's work to be done. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, there's this one message. You see, God comes to Abraham and he says, I know this is a mess. I know this is broken. I know that things have gone wrong, but I'm going to bring my kingdom 
I'm going to roll out the kingdom. I'm going to fix all of this. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make this perfect. There's going to be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And throughout the whole story of the Old Testament, you get these prophets coming along saying, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. And then finally, a guy arrives in the desert, sandals on his feet, eating locusts. And he says, it's here. It's here. Make straight the paths. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. And it hasn't come in all its fullness. But through the resurrection, we participate in bringing it about. Let me explain that to you. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In other words, we literally as Christians in following Jesus, we follow the pattern of his life as we take up our cross and we die to ourselves, but by the resurrection, we are raised again to a greater purpose, a greater life, a better way. And that purpose is to live For the kingdom of God. Jesus said himself, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, you don't see any growth, any change, any newness of life. And it's the same with us. Unless we can we don't unless we die to ourselves, we don't get to experience all of that resurrection power, the newness of life, and living for a greater purpose. That's the foundation of new life. In Christ. You see, the kingdom of God is about an end to injustice and poverty and fear and godlessness and pornography and addiction and hatred and racism and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and pain. And we get to be a part of rolling that out. We get to be a part of seeing that come into reality. We get to make disciples. That's the first thing Jesus tells us to do in Matthew when he rises. We get to preach the gospel. That's what Mark says. And we get to encourage repentance for forgiveness. That's Luke. In other words, you have a divine appointment. Because of the resurrection, because we have a living stone as the head of the church and the head of the kingdom of God, you have this purpose to live for something greater than yourself. And you have an appointment as a minister of reconciliation, literally a door holder. You get to see people come to be reconciled with their Father in heaven. I think it's amazing. We're rescued from a kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of light. And here's a terrifying thought. Everything I invest in the kingdom of God will last forever. Everything I invest in anything else will will fade away. In other words, everything that I've invested in my life, my time, money, energy, and effort in things that are not of the kingdom of God, one day it's going to be exposed as a mirage and I'm going to be embarrassed. But in the resurrected life, in the resurrection power of Jesus, we can live for something greater. Sometimes God will say to me, or rather my my first argument back at God is, you know, I don't really know what I should do. And the answer sometimes is, oh, come on. You know, is it really that difficult? What does it take to sponsor a child? And then I think to myself, my next response is, well, I don't have that much money. And God says to me, well, actually, in global terms, you've got quite a lot of money. Maybe if you cut back to, say, four and a half thousand channels, then, you know, you might be able to sponsor a child. And sometimes I get to a point where I say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, but. And tonight I want to invite you to lay down your butts. 
I want to kick our butts. Certainly mine. You see, it's not in... It doesn't work like this, folks. You don't get really healthy and then become a minister of reconciliation. It's actually in being a minister of reconciliation and working for the kingdom and investing your life in the kingdom and dying to yourself that your heart gets exposed over and over and over again. You get a chance to repent over and over and over again and you become really healthy. I think that's how it works. We meet on a Sunday because that represents our celebration, the resurrected life and purpose that we've all been reborn into. It's wonderful. Now, some of you live a three-stringed existence. What does that mean? Well, there's a legend that says, and a story, I'm pretty sure it's a true story, um, of, of a famous violinist who was playing the most important concert of his life, and halfway through the concert and the concerto, he snapped a string on his four-stringed violin, uh, and there was this gasp of horror in the audience, and then the most magical and extraordinary thing happened. At that very moment, he began to transpose the music and finished the piece that he had to play. And for some of us, we live a three-stringed existence. Life, we live among brokenness and something has happened to us, whether it's a bereavement or whether we're living with the struggle of a disability or whether we're suffering because of a broken relationship or whatever it is. But the truth is, things are never going to be the same again. We've got a three-stringed existence. And I just felt in my preparation tonight, I wanted to say this to you. And I do it really sheepishly and really humbly because I've never been through that. But I felt that what God wanted me to share with you is that it's actually possible to make music with what you have left. You can still live for the kingdom of God. You can still make a difference. You can still enjoy a greater purpose with what you have left and look forward to the day when actually everything will be restored to you. And that's my final point. The resurrection's about hope. John eleven twenty five says this, we shall live as he does. We shall live as he does. And Jesus rose again. He wasn't mistaken for a ghost or for an angel. He was mistaken for a gardener. So there's something gloriously earthy about our resurrected bodies. Now he is the first fruit. And I think our resurrection will be something a little bit like what Jesus experienced. It'll be wonderfully earthy, and yet at the same time, his body begins to walk through walls and appear and disappear in places, and there's something that tells me as well that not only will it be earthy, but it will be perfect. It'll be wonderful. Your body will not be destructible or perishable. It'll be made new, just like everything else. It's a glorious truth. It's a glorious truth. I want to leave you with this. The resurrection's about hope. There's a movie about hope. It's called The Shawshank Redemption. You might have seen it. It's got this wonderful uh, kind of picture of what Jesus accomplished. In every great story, there's a little shadow of the greatest story, isn't there? We saw that this morning. Uh, and in The Shawshank Redemption, there's this character who, who, at the end of the whole story, begins to talk about life on the other side, the kingdom, the promised land, this, this kind of existence where everything will be made new uh, and everything will be perfect. Uh, and it's actually like the, his wildest dreams come true. And he says this. I, I, before I share this with you, I want to tell you, sometimes I, I'm not a big fan of all the stories and the songs that say, you know, we'll get to heaven and before Jesus we'll dance and we'll sing and we'll kneel down and we'll do all these different things. I actually really, really like this picture of heaven. Now, I'm not saying to you this is what's going to happen. It's, I'm not taking this out of scripture, but I just think it's wonderful. I think it's beautiful. He said this. I really hope I make it to the other side. And I hope I get to the shore. 
And when I get to the shore, I hope I'll see my friend because I want to shake his hand. I want to thank him for everything he's done for me. And I hope the Pacific is as blue as it is in my dreams. Now, the New Testament concept of hope is not the same as the way we use the word today when we say, I hope I get a Chinese and I hope my team wins. That's wishful thinking. The New Testament concept of hope is actually more based in certainty. It's a certain hope. So actually, because of the resurrection, I have proof. I'm certain I'm going to make it to the other side. I'm certain I'm going to stand on the shore. And I'm certain that one day I'm going to get to see my friend. I'm going to shake his hand. And I'm going to thank him for what he's done for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight and for all that we've been able to sing about and uh, share together and hear about. And Lord, I just thank you so much that the resurrection, Lord, means that we have assurance of forgiveness. Lord, it means that we can rise again, having died to ourselves, to a greater purpose, to eternal life, to real life, to fulfilling life, to live for your kingdom. And it means, Lord, that even in our suffering and our brokenness and our hurt and the things that are a mess, Lord, we have hope that one day we will stand on the other side and on the shore and we will have an opportunity in a perfect place, a new heavens and a new earth, the fullness of your kingdom to say, Lord Jesus, thank you, my friend, for what you've done for me. Amen.